Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. This conversation is about the first book of Kings. Uh, Mike, what's the, the main focus of this book? Well, the story is going to pick up from the death of King David to the person who will follow him, who will be his son, King Solomon. We'll discover lots about that reign. But then the lack of wisdom of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, whose foolishness will lead the nation to split into two, never to come back together again in the same way. So it is a book of both uh, success and tragedy in the history of Israel. We'll find out what caused that split later on then. And let's just find out how David ended his days, because we heard about his story in our previous episode to Samuel. So the book begins with his death. Yes, we mentioned when we were looking at to Samuel that David seemed to be a bit of a weak father and he didn't always take a firm grip of family life. And we see that spilling over into Kings as the book opens because his eldest surviving son, Adonijah, with his father now getting old and frail and increasingly spending time in bed, puts himself forward, makes a play to become king. It was not unusual in those days to have overlapping rules to ensure continuity. And so Adonijah makes a bid for the kingdom and has himself proclaimed king by his followers, whereupon Bathsheba runs to David and says, here, I've just heard, I've been told that Adonijah's had himself proclaimed king. I thought you would promise me that Solomon was going to become king. And, and David says, yes, that's exactly right. And so he arranges for Solomon to be anointed as the king to take his place. There's some great music uh, out of that. Zadok the priest anointed Solomon king is one of the well-known pieces of music by many people. And this is happening at the end of David's life? At the very end of his life, really in the last um, days or weeks. And having anointed him as king, he gives him a final charge in chapter 2 of 1 Kings and then we read from verse 10 that David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, Jerusalem. He'd reigned for 40 years over Israel. During David's reign, there'd been great success. How did things change or continue during Solomon's reign? Well, with even more success, but there's going to be a but in a minute. I mean, the reign of Solomon was one of the most prosperous and successful periods of Israel's history in the Old Testament. Solomon creates immense wealth, particularly through trade. He becomes an importer and an exporter. He exploits uh, that central position there in, in the Middle East. And uh, he even develops a fleet of ships down on the Red Sea becomes a bit of a threat to people like the Queen of Sheba, who thought she'd got control of all that, and so she'll pay him a visit at one point. So it's a time of immense growth and prosperity and increasing wealth and 
and he becomes famous through all that he does. The borders of Israel become the greatest they would ever be in the whole of the Old Testament history. He builds a beautiful temple for God, we'll see. He builds a beautiful palace for himself. This is an amazing time. So it is a time of incredible wealth, prosperity, and success. But as so often, of course, that comes at a, a price, and it would do as the story unfolds. Was all this success for Solomon simply down to the fact that he was very gifted or talented? Not at all. Now, that's not to say he was not a, a very gifted and talented ruler. But actually, his success is rooted in something entirely different. Because one of the things that Solomon did when he became king was to ask God for wisdom. God appeared to him, spoke to him in a dream and said, Solomon, ask for whatever you want. Wow. Imagine, I don't know, what would you say if God said to you today, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. I don't know if my answer would have been what Solomon answered at that point. Because what he says to God is, God, you've shown us such kindness. Do you know what? All I ask is give your servant a wise and discerning heart to discover the difference between right and wrong. So he asks for wisdom, for a wise and discerning heart. And, and God goes on to say, because you've asked for a wise and discerning heart, I'll actually give you what you've not asked for as well, which is the riches and the wealth that the kingdom uh, acquired. So where did this find its origin? It found its origin in God. And certainly at the start of his reign, Solomon was a very, very godly man. He put God at the center of his life. But you can hear there's, there's a buck coming on us, can't you? Because I often think what sums up Solomon's life? Well, wisdom that he asked for. Oh, and by the way, we get an example of that straight away in chapter three, where the two women come who claim to own the same baby and they can't decide who is the mother. And he says, okay, get me a sword, chop the baby in two. And of course, the real mother instantly cries out, no. She steps forward, yeah. And he says, that's the mother. So there's a little example of it at a personal level. So Solomon is characterized by wisdom, wealth. We've already spoken of how incredibly wealthy and extensive the state was, wisdom, wealth. But the third W was wives. <laughs> Plural. <laughs> Plural. And that's not that wives are not a good thing. But what Solomon did was that he took many, many wives, as well as many what were called concubines, sort of secondary wives, and he had literally hundreds of them. And many of those wives were foreign princesses. Now, again, that ought to ring a little bell because God's word had said that his people were not to marry outside the family of faith. But Solomon ends up marrying princesses from nearby nations, particularly the nations that he needed to de deals with. So like Phoenicia, which was a trading nation there on the coast, and he needed to be able to trade with them. So he ends up taking these foreign wives to himself. The text tells us he ends up with 700 wives 
and 300 concubines in his royal harem. That's a thousand women that he has. And of course, each of these women that he brings, well, it feeds a little bit his self-esteem, doesn't it? All these princesses from other nations who want to marry Solomon. And little by little, I'm sure the pride started to grow in his heart about how important he was. But even worse, what happens is that each of these women comes and brings with them their foreign gods. And I can imagine that at the beginning, they sort of did, oh, honey, could I just have a little cupboard where I could keep my idol? But this story tells us that little by little, these gods started to steal something of Solomon's heart. And the man who starts out the story is totally sold out for God, realizing only with God's wisdom can he have success. Slowly, little by little, starts to make space for, oh, he still believed in God and still worshipped God, but it was God with a little bit of room for other gods as well. And it gradually steals his heart. So by chapter 11 of 1 Kings, we've actually got the text telling us that these wives slowly stole his heart. It says, as he grew older, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of his father David had been. So wisdom, wealth, but his many wives would end up being a route into robbing his heart away from total devotion to God. I'm particularly intrigued with the fact that he asked for something that money couldn't buy, wisdom. I don't know about you, I've asked for wisdom quite regularly. Sure. How do we get the balance between receiving that wisdom and using that wisdom? You know, God has given a mixture of things. He, he, he's given us minds to think through, and we are made in the image of God. We saw when we were looking at Genesis, and so... You know, he has given us a capacity to process things and think things through. But the trouble is so often we think things through sinfully or selfishly or with our own vested interest. And so asking for God's wisdom and one of the chief places that his wisdom comes from us, of course, is still his word. One of the main sources of wisdom for Solomon would have been the scriptures that he would have had. Now, he wouldn't have had a Bible like us, but he's definitely got the first five books of the Bible the books of the law, which are very clear, even about things like don't take foreign wives. God's best is one man, one woman for life in a faithful marriage relationship. So it's like he has got these wise principles there already, but he failed to live by them. And, and why? Well, I think he was selective. I think he wanted to choose the ones that suited him. Of course, you and I would never have ever done anything like that, would we? But it is a challenge to know how do we balance, you know, asking God for wisdom. I would say one of the things that we can do today is to do what his son wouldn't do. We'll see later in the story. And it's to surround ourselves with other godly people. Not that we are going to take their advice per se, but to have both scripture in front of us, friends around us who love us enough to tell us the truth and say, come on, David, you're doing this because it serves you, not other people. Mm. So I think the word of God in front of us, wise friends around us, 
the Holy Spirit of God within us. And as these things line up, a bit like the lights have to line up for a pilot landing his plane on the runway, help us to make good choices. And sadly, despite his prayer, although he started off wise, he slowly, slowly, slowly over his life just made space for other things that slowly robbed him of the fruit of that wisdom. So how did that start to have an effect on what people thought of him? Well, at, at the beginning, they thought he was a great king. And of course, um, the reason Israel had wanted a king in the first place was because they kept getting beaten by all these enemies round about them. Now, nobody came against Israel. Its borders were huge. They would never be this big again. His army was vast. He had built up his army. He'd strengthened Jerusalem. He did a couple of other good things. He built the temple. David had wanted to build a temple for God and God had said, I'm sorry, you can't, but your son will do it for me. And now on that site that David had bought for the temple, uh, from chapter six onwards, Solomon builds this magnificent temple to God. Interestingly, he used Phoenician architects. So guess what? The temple ended up with a Phoenician design, a pagan design. He perhaps not quite thought that one through, but he builds this magnificent temple as a place where everyone can come and see this is the place where the Ark of the Covenant now dwells. This is the place that is the house of God. And of course, everyone was really excited by this thought of a great temple for their God until they sat down to think, who's going to pay for this? Now, guess who was going to pay for it? Well, yep, the same people who pay for things like that today. The answer is you and me. The taxpayers. The taxpayers. And that's a really good choice of words because Solomon was the first person to introduce taxes into Israel. There had never been taxes up to this point. There had been the tithes and the offerings to support the work of God, the support of the priest, but there had never been taxes. And so Solomon starts to impose taxes on the people. He divides up his nation into districts, but that don't align with the old tribal districts. That was a big mistake for a start. He puts governors there whose responsibility it is to raise taxes to pay for this temple. But then who's going to do the work for this temple? Well, Solomon thinks, well, do you know what? It would be a good idea if everybody offers their service so that each of the 12 tribes has to offer free labor for one month each year to come and build this temple. What a privilege that will be for you all. Conscription labor. Well, give me another word for conscription labor. I think it is slavery. And of course, that was the very thing that God had freed his people from way back in Egypt. So we've got sort of two things happening here. At the one level, all this wealth and growth and splendor in building his temple and an even more beautiful palace. But underneath, the people starting to creak and groan with the burden of having to pay for all this to the point where by the time Solomon dies, they can bear it no longer. So who takes over from Solomon? Well, Solomon has succeeded by his son, Rehoboam. And 
Rehoboam is determined to show that he is an absolute equal to his dad. And so in chapter 12 of 1 Kings, we find that the representatives of all the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes, come to Rehoboam and say, look, your majesty, it's wonderful to be able to serve you, but, you know, your father really did put huge burdens on us in the terms of taxes and this compulsory labor that we had to provide to build the temple. And really what we're pleading to you as you start your reign is to lighten the burden that is upon us. So Rehoboam says, okay, um, I'll think about this, come back and see me in a few days. And he consults the older elders who'd served his father and said, what would you advise me to do? And they say, do you know what? I think they've got a point. If you really want to be wise, I think you need to listen to them. But then he consults the uh, the young guys who've grown up with him, the young bucks, uh, and says, what would you say? And, of course, they say, well, you need to show them who's boss around here, you know, and show them that they haven't seen anything yet. So by the time the representatives come back, he refuses to not only remove these taxes and burdens from them. He actually says to them, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get worse. He's trying to play the tough guy. And he hadn't thought of consulting God. He hadn't thought of consulting anybody other than those who would give him the answer that we want. By the way, when you want wise advice, don't ask people who know they're going to give you the, the answer you want. It's probably going to be unhelpful. So he just says... You ain't seen nothing yet. He wants to play the tough guy and it all explodes in his face because the representatives of the 10 northern tribes in chapter 12 turn around and say, well, in that case, what do we have to do with you any longer? And they break away. They take the 10 northern tribes and they set up an entirely separate kingdom. And whereas... David and then Solomon had been able to pull all the tribes together around that capital in Jerusalem. The 10 northern tribes now break away, set up a king of their own who is not descended from King David, a guy called Jeroboam, who had simply been one of the leaders under Solomon. And he'd had to flee to Egypt when he upset Solomon for some reason. They call him back to the north. And Jeroboam is now set up as king of the north, leaving Rehoboam, Solomon's son, as king just of the smaller two southern tribes. So from a united kingdom, we've now got a divided kingdom. Absolutely. And all because of Rehoboam's folly, all because of his stupidity. And this split of the two that from now on will lead to the northern tribes being known as Israel and the southern tribes being known as Judah, that split would never, ever be healed again. And to make sure that the two are divided, Jeroboam in the north, well, he doesn't want people going to Jerusalem for the temple, of course. That's the last thing he wants. So the end of chapter 12, we find that he... He sets up a new capital in Shechem. Eventually that will be replaced for a new capital uh, called Samaria. 
and to make sure that people don't go back to Jerusalem, he sets up two golden calves. Uh-oh, I seem to remember we met that in the wilderness when Moses was up the mountain. And he sets up a golden calf at Bethel and down in the north and south of his territory and basically says, here are your gods. This is who we're going to worship and where we are going to worship. So the nation is now split into two. Only the south will have descendants of King David and the kings of the north in the coming years will be ragtag and bobtail. They will come from all over the place. Some will be long range, some short. There's very little hereditary monarchy there. We'll see assassinations and mess ups and all sorts of things. So the north will only actually last for about 209 years. It will have 20 kings in 209 years from many different dynasties. The south will be much more stable. 20 kings, all from David's family line, over 344 years. So the story of the North will fade out much quicker than the story of the South. And it's amazing that it goes back, this divided kingdom, to Rehoboam and the way he dealt with the situation after his father's death. Yeah, absolutely. One man's foolish decision led to a nation splitting in two and never, ever coming back together again. So many kings in the north, in the south. How does the Book of One Kings record their various reigns? Well, here's a little tip that I'm going to give to us that will really help us to understand, because to be honest, it can be quite confusing reading one and two kings until you know what you're looking for. So basically what happens is after this story of the revolt of the North and it's breaking away from the South, the author of one and two Kings then looks at the history of both South and North synchronistically side by side. So he'll always start with a King of the South, a King of Judah, and will tell the story of that King's life from beginning to end. When that king dies, he then says, meanwhile, in the north, this was happening. And he will tell the story of the king or kings of Judah over that period. Then when that king dies, he'll say, now, back in the south, in Judah, among the true descendants of David, this king reigned. And when he dies, meanwhile, back in the north. So the thing to do when you're reading Kings is to look and see whether the king you're reading about is a king of Israel or a king of Judah. If it's a king of Israel, it's from this breakaway, illegal northern kingdom that's broken away from the true descendants of David and that will end in disaster. If you're reading and it's about a king of Judah, then it will be one of the true line of descendants of King David through whom alone God is going to continue his purposes. So that little tip looking for, is it about breakaway Israel or is it about Judah, the descendants of David, is just a simple way to weave your way through this, what to us is a slightly complex structure of how he approaches the history at this time. 
And does one king sort of tend to focus on some of those kings a little bit more than others? Yes. Basically, if it's a bad king, he gets very short shrift and doesn't get mentioned at all. And even if he was a good king, but a good king who didn't follow God, he likewise gets very few lines. By contrast, the kings who get much more space given to them, I'll just give you a couple of examples because we can't look at them all. But kings like King Hezekiah, who came to the throne in 715 BC, who's well known for restoring the temple after it had fallen into disrepair under his ancestors, and who, when threatened by Sennacherib and his armies, uh, spreads out the threatening letter before God and trusts in God to rescue him. So that's a great story to read in chapters 18 and 19, actually of, of two kings. Uh, and the King Josiah also uh, goes into the, the second book as well. So a lot of the good kings are there, but we also get bad kings listed here. And it's pretty clear, the writer is pretty clear all the way along about which kings are good, which kings did right, which kings did evil. One of the other things that really comes out, particularly in the book of one kings is the prophet Elijah who lived in the time of one of the bad kings. This was King Ahab uh, who married a wife called Jezebel who came from Phoenicia. And there they had a, a particularly sort of bullish, aggressive form of Baal worship that she brought with her and brought King Ahab over to. So he becomes a Baal worshiper. And so God raises up the prophet Elijah. So we can read about him from chapter 17 onwards of 1 Kings, and it just goes over into 2 Kings as well. Sorry, I keep spilling into 2 Kings a bit, but it was split at a slightly odd place. So there are some great stories about Elijah, and what we see Elijah standing up for is basically his message, who is the true king here? King, you're misleading the people to think it is Baal, but I want to show you who the true God in heaven is. And so there are some great stories about Elijah in this story of God's miraculous provision for him and through him. Uh, and in particular, in chapter 18, he has this contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, where he challenges them to see who is God, has them build an altar, and he builds an altar and says, the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the prophets of Baal sing and dance and slash themselves and call on Baal to send fire to consume this sacrifice. But of course, nothing happens. And then Elijah goes to his sacrifice, pours water over it, first of all, and calls on God and fire comes from heaven. And the sacrifice is consumed. And he says, now see who is God. And as a result of that, I mean, he, he was a, a real go-getter, this guy. He has all the prophets of Baal slaughtered on Mount Carmel and then runs off in Great Depression when Queen Jezebel threatens to get him until God meets him again and sends him back. So Elijah is very much the prophet raised up by God to challenge this drifting of the north because all this happened in the northern kingdom of Israel to challenge this drift away from the living God from Yahweh 
to the false god of Baal. As you have read through the first book of Kings, what particularly is left for you to reflect on as you apply it to your own life? I think it probably does come back to the importance of wisdom and living out of God's word. You know, this history could have been oh so different if only Rehoboam had one, taken the time to pray and ask God, two, looked at the scripture and listened to the prophets, and three, not just with his mates who were happy to tell him anything he wanted to hear. And if only he'd done that, the history would have turned out really very, very different indeed. So I think for me, as I read this and as I read the different kings, and obviously in this short time, we've not been able to look at them all. But it's clear that those kings who didn't put God first ended up personally in a mess and the nation became a mess. But those kings who did led their country well and it saw God's blessing. And it really heightens one of the underlying themes of the history of this period that we saw in the book of Deuteronomy as Moses gave his final blessing to the nation. And that is obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to curse. If you will ask God and do it God's way, ultimately, things will always come out good for you and for God's people. But if you don't ask God, or you do exclude God, or you reject God's wisdom, then frankly, don't be surprised when it all goes pear-shaped and it all goes wrong. How much better to resolve to be the good sort of king like Jehoshaphat or Hezekiah or Josiah, who seek to say, God, what do you want? And whatever it is, if you will help me, I will do it. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.